Our Father in heaven, we worship your Son because he demonstrated his love for us on the cross. And Lord, we've heard how you love him because of his willingness to sacrifice himself for us and of his power to raise up his life. And this morning we worship him as the source of all life. I pray that you would help us to see him clearly in the scriptures, that you would bless this time as I worship through preaching, and that you would help us as a church to take your words to heart, that they would produce life in us, and that we would bear fruit, and that that fruit would remain for all of eternity to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We have, for the Christmas season, been doing something a little bit different. Uh, John's Gospel one of two gospels that do not have any information about the birth of Christ. And yet he begins the story of Jesus in eternity past. And if you're going to understand who Jesus is, who was born at Christmas time, you need to know that he did not begin to be in a stable in Bethlehem. And so John tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We worship him as God because he is equal with the Father. And Jesus, to help us know who he is, gives us a number of statements through John's gospel. So we've taken just a couple of weeks and and looked at a few of them. We've seen how Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, which Donnie just, just read from John. We've also seen how Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the light of the world, that he is the only light. There is no other light. And that if you want to know the father, you have to come to the father through Jesus Christ. And today I want to speak primarily to those of you who already know Christ. But if you're here and you don't know Christ, as I describe what it means to be united to Jesus by faith, my prayer is that you will want to know and experience the goodness of knowing Christ and that you will place your faith and trust in him. You've already seen someone express that faith through baptism this morning, and my prayer is that all of us would experience the same joy that comes from knowing God through Christ Jesus. So I want to do something now that I normally never do because I I hate distractions from the word, and I worry that sometimes an illustration will do the opposite of what it's supposed to do. You're supposed to take an illustration and and use it to help you illuminate the text, and if it becomes a distraction and the only thing that someone remembers is the illustration, then you've kind of failed. But at the risk of doing exactly that, I want to ask you to pause with me before we go to John's gospel and meditate on this. The beauty of a power strip like this is that you can connect it to a wall and then where you could only plug two devices in, now you can plug in six. This was of immense importance to us in Chicago where we lived in a tiny little studio because it was built somewhere in the late 1800s. They actually still had real fuses. When something went wrong, they didn't flip a breaker. They had a strange thing that I'd never seen before in my life that they swapped out. And when they built our place, I think there was maybe two outlets in the entire tiny little place, which for millennials is nowhere near enough. 
So we had a number of these that we connected to the power source, and then we could plug anything we wanted to in this at all. And, and for a little while, until we blew a fuse, we would have power. The thing about this is, though, you have to connect it to the right place. Have you ever seen someone try this? It won't work. And as you think about where you and I have power, I I think this is a great picture of where our culture, as 21st century Americans, tells us to find our power. My wife and I just, well, really my wife brought the two babies into the world. I didn't do much to, to help with that. I did try to encourage her along the way. When a woman is about to give birth, you can read all kinds of stuff online. All types of women will tell you, you know, you are a goddess. Your body is made for this. You, you are an awesome, powerful thing. And that, that it's true that God made us in an incredible way and that your body is capable of great things. But we live in a fallen world and sometimes things don't work like they're supposed to. Sometimes what should be beautiful and awesome is deeply tragic and painful. And so if you trust in yourself in that moment that you have the power you need within you, that you can do it, and then you fail, you're utterly hopeless. The same is true, you know, we have that expression of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. We love inspiring stories. Maybe you saw the movie that came out about 10 years ago uh, where Will Smith in, in what was a true story, describe how a man who had lived as a homeless man with his son was able to learn how to be an investor. It's a great inspirational movie. It makes you feel great because as you watch it, you, you see and think it is possible. If you just persevere with hard work, you can not only make it, but achieve great wealth and be able to provide for your son. And it's a great story and it's wonderful inspiration, but the message is it depends on you. And so if you experience any failure in your life, you own that deeply and there's no hope. The scripture describes something that is very different from a message that you can just believe in yourself, that you have the power within you. The scripture says that you and I need to draw our power and our life from Jesus Christ. And so I want to point you to what Jesus says about himself in the Gospel of John and look at one more of these I am statements before we return to our series in Luke in January. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. 
if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This morning, I want to point you to three things in this text. I want to point you to the work of Christ, to what Jesus does here. I want to describe the work of the Father, what the Father does here. And then I want to describe your work, what you and I are to do in this text, what Jesus teaches us to do, what he calls abiding in him. And it's my prayer that you and I would learn to live by faith in the Son of God. And as we learn to live by faith, that we would experience the abundant joy that Jesus says is possible. In fact, skip down. It's a little bit past my text this morning. But notice what Jesus says, why he says these things. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's my prayer that I and you and everyone who knows Christ would be able to experience that kind of radical joy. It's the kind of joy that most people never know. And yet think for a moment about the joy of Christ. You and I are frustrated all the time by many, many different things. Jesus has never been frustrated because of something he couldn't do. He is the son of the father. He knows his father loves him. You and I have all kinds of insecurities and fears. You know, we, we wonder, do people really like me? We, we wonder, you know, does God really like me? We worry about all kinds of things. Jesus has never been depressed and wondered if his father loves him. Ever. In fact, when you read all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all those books that give us the little story of Jesus' life and ministry, all of them show you Jesus' complete, rock-solid faith that the Father is in control. He says to Pilate when he's on trial, you would have no power unless it were given to you by the Father. He never wavers in that. And because he's so confident, and because he's never been frustrated by something he couldn't do, and because he knows the love of the Father, and for a thousand other reasons, his joy is complete. Jesus is the happiest person in the universe, equally with the Father and the Son. And Jesus says he wants that kind of joy to be in you. And the only way you'll experience it is if you abide in Christ. So the most important question we have this morning is, what does it mean to abide in Christ? And to answer that question, let's talk for a minute about what Jesus says. Jesus makes the claim, I am the true vine. That means a couple of things. Number one, there are other false vines that are competing. There are other things that say, I can give you joy. There are other things that say, I am the truth. All of those other things are wrong. All of those other things ultimately are idolatry because they are not connecting you to the Father. 
If you pride yourself in being a self-made person, it means you're not connected to the true vine. It means you're trying to be your own vine. You might try a number of different things to find fulfillment and joy, but Jesus says he is the true vine. If Jesus is not part of your life, it means you are missing out on the only thing that will give you an eternal joy. He is the source of your physical life. He is the resurrection and the life. He can take your soul, which the scriptures say is dead to God because of sin, and he can make it alive. Just as Donnie read, he's got the power to to lay his life down and take it up again. He has the power to raise you to life. He's the only person that can do that. And if you don't know him, you are left in your sins. And the scripture says that you are dead to God. And one day when you die and stand before him, you will end up in hell forever separated from God where there is no joy. All of this comes from the reality that Jesus is the true vine and the only true vine. We've talked a little bit about what he said when he said, I am the bread of life. How we come to Christ so that we can experience life. How we, by faith in his body that was broken for us on the cross, we partake in him and experience that life. This metaphor of the vine describes how that's an ongoing experience. If you think for a minute about a vine, even more than a meal. You know, you you and I, we eat three times a day, maybe more If you've got small ones, you might eat six or eight times a day. If you're a teenager, you probably eat more than that. But a vine is always connected to its source of nutrition. In fact, it doesn't even take a break while it's sleeping. It doesn't sleep. It's constantly connected to the soil. And so Jesus is teaching us that there is a moment-by-moment dependence on him. We continually depend on the work of Christ so that we rest, so that we don't feel anxious because we remember that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. I have no reason to be anxious when I stand before God because Jesus has done it all for me. Not only that, as he calls me to a life of obedience, I don't do it in my own power. I do it by faith that he continues to empower me so that I draw all of my strength from him by faith. The faith that saves you is the faith that gives you power to walk in obedience. All of this comes from what Jesus says, I am the true vine. So what does Jesus do in this text? He provides you with a constant source of life and health and power and joy. You might be a believer today and maybe you don't experience that joy. Maybe you've experienced it at times. I think if you've come to know the Lord and experienced the joy of having your sins forgiven, some of you, you might say, that's the highest point of my spiritual life. I would love to be able to experience something like that again, but I haven't experienced that in years. Jesus says that you can experience that kind of joy, not just once when you're saved, but as a continual ongoing experience. I want to be clear. It doesn't mean that you don't experience any pain in life. In fact, the question that that I want to address now is what does the father do? Because Jesus teaches that, that not only is he the true vine, through Christ, we are connected to the father. And he says, the father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it would bear more fruit. One of the questions that we ought to ask is, is what is biblical pruning? What on earth is he talking about? What does the Father do so that you and I, who are believers in Christ, produce fruit? And what does he do so that those who are not believers in Christ are taken away from even being associated with him? Well, the scripture shows a couple of different things, and, and I'm going to give you three chapters. We're not going to look at all of them. I'm going to reference them. I would encourage you, if you're a note taker, to, to jot them down and read them a little bit later. I want to mention one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, one of the things that we like to say as Christians in pop Christian culture is, God never gives you more than you can handle. The truth is, Paul says, God gave him so much more that he could handle that he despaired of life. Have you ever heard of a pastor or missionary saying, God's given me so much that I'm practically suicidal right now. I just can't take it. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 1. And then he gives you the purpose. He says, this was so that we would not depend on ourselves, but that we would learn to depend on the God who raises the dead. God's purpose in Paul's life was to make him hopeless in himself so that he would hope in the living God. Now you might have come to Christ and experienced the joy of your sins being forgiven. You might be on cloud nine. I've heard people describe coming to Christ and and experiencing that, you know, I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that God loves me. And, And they say it's like the sun is brighter and the sky is bluer. But then life doesn't stay that way. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 is not saying it's endless blue skies from here on out. He's saying, God gave me so much more than I could handle that I learned that I needed to depend on him, not on myself. See, you and I have a tendency, especially as Americans, we love the idea that we are self-made people. We love the idea that I have what I have because I've worked for it, which is not at all what the scriptures teach. Scripture teaches that anything that you have is a gift of God. And so it ought to promote humility. It ought to promote the kind of generosity that God has had with you that you very kindly and graciously continue to give to other people because of what God has given to you. And Paul said that God in his love and in his mercy overwhelmed him. You might wonder where the blue skies went. You might wonder why you're not experiencing a kind of joy. And it's completely possible that what the father is doing for you is he is pruning you so that you produce more fruit. And the way he is pruning you is he's overwhelming you. That's what he did to Paul. He gave him more than he could handle so that he would learn to rely on the God who raises the dead. Because what happens in so many Christians' lives is they recognize, I have a need for my sins to be forgiven. But they don't recognize that they have a need to walk in the power of Christ. Your need is not just a clean slate. Your need is to learn how to walk in union with your Savior so that you serve him as you should so that you become part of the church as you ought to be, so that you are part of God's people living as God's family in the joy that comes through knowing him better and better. You don't know God well the day you meet him. 
It will take all of eternity for you to know the fullness of God's joy. And you will never know it fully because there will always be more. That's why being in heaven is the most incredible thing in the world. Sometimes people think of heaven and they think of the the things that they love to do here. And and I'm sure we'll do some of those. You know, I love to make music. I'm sure we'll be making music. You know, Dave, you're an engineer. I believe there will be engineering in heaven without frustration. (laughs) I believe it'll be full of joy to understand the fullness of God's creation. But we can't even imagine things that, that scripture says, We can't fathom what God has prepared for those who love him and know him. That there will be things that that are just even beyond our imagination and it will go on forever and ever and ever for all of eternity. That's what it means to know God. But the way that you know him here, the forgiveness of sins and beginning to abide. Hebrews 12 describes another way that the father prunes. Hebrews 12 describes the discipline of God. And many times, we sometimes wonder if something bad happens, like God must be angry with me. Hebrews 12 says that the Father disciplines those he loves. Because the things that are harmful to you, he wants to remove from your life, and so his discipline is an act of love. And it's different than just helping you produce more fruit. The things that you love that are bad for you are hindering your ability to make fruit, and so he wants to remove them from your life. Whether it's sinful habits, whether it's a waste of time, the Father wants you to be fruitful. And so I don't know that Paul was being disciplined necessarily. I think Paul wasn't doing anything wrong. Hebrews 12 is describing a different scenario where you may be doing something wrong and the Father's going to discipline you so that you change, so that you forsake a sin that is hindering your growth. So you can think of 2 Corinthians 1 as the Father pruning you, even though you haven't done anything. You can think of Hebrews chapter 12 as the father disciplining you because he loves you and he wants you to forsake your sin. And maybe you weren't even aware of that sin when you came to Christ, but the longer you know him, the more you'll be aware of it. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because it means that God, the father is making you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And you are loving the things of God more and more. And his discipline is not his displeasure. His discipline is a sign of his steadfast and faithful love that he has in you as his beloved child. The third way that I believe the father prunes, just pencil down James chapter one and really go ahead and read the whole book of James. It's short. What James says in chapter one is that you and I should count it all joy when we fall into various types of trials. This is maybe a little bit more like what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 1. It just means anything in life. James writes and tells us that, that the Father uses those things to make us perfect in our faith. And it is an open door as to what that is. It could be a car accident or cancer. Some of you this year have lost a spouse. Some of you have realized that, that your grandkids are not following your faith. That they don't maybe know the Lord and that's enormously painful. Some of you are in financial difficulties and turmoils. Some of you have all kinds of problems that I don't even know about. Some of you have gone through divorce in the past year. James says, whatever it is, that did not happen because the father suddenly lost control of the universe. James says that whatever trial it is, and it can be anything, 
You can have joy in that trial because the testing of your faith is producing endurance. Meaning, the faith that you had when you came to Christ, suddenly when life is difficult, you're going to find out if it's genuine faith. If it is, you will endure. And in your endurance, you will become a more mature believer in Christ. And as you grow in Christ and become more mature, you will find a kind of joy. Can you imagine a person on the other side of divorce experiencing joy? There are a lot of bitter people today. They've been divorced for decades and they are still consumed by anger and bitterness because of what they lost. But a Christian can experience something that painful and know a joy that no one else can understand. I believe what Jesus is teaching, he wants you to be fruitful as a believer. Doesn't mean that they were right. Doesn't mean that you weren't wrong. What it means is the Father has a purpose and a plan for everything that happens in the life of someone who trusts in Christ. If you haven't trusted in Christ, many of those exact same things will cause you to walk away from the faith. And I believe that's what Jesus is describing when he says that those who do not bear fruit are cut off from the vine, they're removed, and they're thrown away and burned. It means that they have no life in Christ. If the trials and hardships of this life cause you to walk away, or even just the busyness of life makes it so that worshiping the Lord is no longer a priority for you, it's demonstrating that you don't truly have life in Christ. Because there are only two directions that you can head. You can abide in Christ and be more and more fruitful until Jesus returns or calls you home, or the Father will remove you from the vine and you will wither and one day be separated from God for all of eternity. That's the Father's work. The good news is that we have a joyful God who longs to bless you. And I want to be very clear about that because I think so many of us have issues with God where we just, we imagine him as this constantly angry person and he's happy with Jesus and and hopefully sometimes he's happy with us. That's not at all what Jesus describes here. He describes as a God that wants to produce fruit in your life. Jesus says that if you abide in him and his words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Because verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. So, Becca, I just want to speak to you just for a moment because you were baptized today. What this verse is saying to someone like you is that your Christian life, even though you've known the Lord for a little while, you're still very young. It's just beginning. That you have a long time ahead of you where your life will be tested. And it's the Father's glory to produce fruit in you as you abide in Christ. Don't ever feel like the Father is somehow hoping that maybe you'll you'll fail. God does not set you up in these traps where where you cannot succeed. His desire is to produce fruit through you. And that's true whether you've known the Lord for a short time or for a long time. I want to urge you to recognize the goodness of a God who gives you life and longs that your life would be useful. The good news is that the Father's heart is that we would be fruitful, both as believers and as a church. So the question then becomes, knowing what Jesus does as the vine, what the father does as the vine dresser, 
What do you and I do? Jesus says a few things throughout this passage that describes what it means to abide in Christ or to remain in Christ. In fact, John uses this word an enormous amount in, the, in his first letter. And you can see his passion is that Christians not just have an experience with Jesus, but that they would have a lifetime with Jesus that literally never ends, that extends all the way into eternity. The, the word literally just means remain or stay. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it, it describes staying at someone's house. You know, I'm going to allow you to stay with me. You remain here. In some contexts, it just means being alive. At the end of this gospel, there's a question as to whether or not John is going to remain alive until Jesus comes back. John's real clear. Jesus didn't say that. Same word. Will he remain? Same word. The question for you and I is, will we remain in Christ? And one of the ways that I want you to think about this is thinking through what Jesus has said here. One of the keys here is that he says, if my words remain in you. And I want to remind you of a couple of the words of Jesus that we've seen in the Gospel of John. Think of the images and pictures that he gives us. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I think many of you would remember those. Many of you could have said, you know, what does Jesus say about those I am statements? You probably could have said a number of them. If you remain in Christ, you'll not only be able to recite them, they will be true for you as you walk with him. Now, what do I mean? What do I mean by that? Think for a moment about, I am the light of the world. Now, think for a second. If you, or maybe someone you love, maybe one of your kids comes to you and says, you know, I I know that Jesus said something like, I am the light of the world, but there are billions of people that don't know Christ. And I'm just not sure that's true. I think maybe there are multiple ways to God. In that moment, your conviction about the truth of Jesus' statement is being tested. If you say, I believe what Jesus said, you are remaining in him because his words are remaining in you and you are agreeing with them. You are saying, I don't know what you mean, and I don't know why you're saying that, but I believe what Jesus said is true and real. If, on the other hand, because you love your child, maybe more than Christ, you say, maybe you're right. You know, I'm going to still believe in Jesus, but, but you do what seems best for you. If you do that, you are denying the words of Christ, and his words are not remaining in you. And if you are not remaining in Christ, you will not produce fruit and perhaps your faith is not genuine. Letting the words of Christ abide in you have very practical applications for how you treat your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors. And part of it is knowing what Christ said, but not just knowing it, acting on it in faith and continuing to believe it when that faith is tested. Jesus says so clearly, he wants his words to abide in you. And so very practically, you need to remember his words and believe them even when other people are not. Not only that, he teaches that we ought to ask 
whatever we wish, if his words abide in us. Meaning, if you have been taught by Christ and you understand his heart, especially his heart for the lost and his compassion for the poor, if his words are abiding in you and changing you and teaching you, then ask whatever you wish. Because if you are aligned with his will, you will be asking for good things. In fact, one of the things I believe this passage teaches we can always ask the Father for is to give us more of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I feel like I don't know Christ as well as I should. Maybe my life has not been fruitful in the way that Jesus is talking about here. You know what would be an excellent prayer at the conclusion of this sermon? is Father, make me fruitful, so connect me better to Christ. What would maybe be a painful prayer, but an honest prayer and a good prayer, is Father, prune my life. Make me aware of things that, that hinder the life of Christ in me. Take away sins that maybe I'm not even aware of. If you pray that kind of prayer, you are completely in line with God's will for you. And God would love to say yes. Now, if you pray that kind of prayer, I believe that your faith will be tested. You may experience terrible pain in the coming weeks, but it is for your eternal good. Would you rather be comfortable for the span of 70 or 80 years and be separated from God for eternity? Or would you rather have the Father lovingly prune you so that your life produces eternal fruit and you have never-ending joy for all of eternity? I believe that God's desire for you is that you would know Christ. So number one, abide in Christ by knowing the words of Christ and remaining faithful to his teaching. Number two, abide in Christ by boldly asking for the things that you need. And I've just mentioned two, give me more of Christ and prune things out of my life. There are others, the more you know Christ, the better you'll be at asking. Number three, the way that Jesus teaches us to abide is by keeping his commandments. Verse 10 says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, now what does that mean? It's true, you can summarize all of the commandments of God by loving God and loving your neighbor. But that's very vague, and especially in our culture where we love to say, whatever makes me feel good, that's the loving thing. We need to understand that that works the other way too. That the commands of God help us understand what true love really is. So let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. When God says, you shall not steal. That's a very practical way of loving your neighbor, right? You don't take his stuff. When God says, you shall not commit adultery, that is a way of not only loving your spouse, but also loving your neighbor because you're not stealing your neighbor's spouse. When God says things like, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and and as Christians, we worship on Sunday, He's not saying, you better give me one day a week or you're just out of my favor. That's not what he means. He's saying, if you want to love me, you need to set aside time to know me and to rest. In fact, Christian worshiping on Sunday, it's not something that is a burden. It's the thing that ought to actually give you strength and health and help. And so all of the commands of God in scripture are given to help you know what this love 
is. And Jesus condenses it down to one simple statement. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In order to understand what that means, you need to know the commands of Christ. And so if you're going to abide in him, if you're going to produce fruit, you need to know his words and be faithful to them. You need to ask for things in prayer and see God supply them. And you need to walk in obedience to his command to love as he has loved us sacrificially, laying yourself down for the good of other people. And if you do those things, I believe because God is faithful, he will continue to supply you with power so that like Paul, even as you despair because of the things that are happening around you, you learn to rely on the power of the God who raises the dead. So what do we do with this? Well, I want to challenge you to think very personally about whether or not you do these things. If I asked you, can you tell me a little bit about what Jesus taught? What did he say? If I gave you a little open blue book essay test right now, what would you say about the teachings of Christ? How well do you know them? Because if you don't know them, you can't abide in them. And I want to challenge you to know them better and better. One of the ways to know them is just like what we're doing right here, to listen to preaching that's devoted to the word. One of the ways to know them is to read your word faithfully, to read your Bible faithfully. I want to ask you, are you faithful in knowing the words of Christ? I want to ask you, are you faithful in praying? One of my desires for us as a church is that we would grow in this more and more, that we would ask for good things and that we would see the Father bless us. And I want to be real frank, if you've been part of our church for a long time, the past year has been very hard. Do you know what I believe is happening? I believe that God the Father in his love is pruning us. He's teaching us to depend on him and not on ourselves and he will never fail. And so I believe that this is a promise that we can take that as we depend on Christ, he will produce fruit in our lives as believers and in our collective life together as a church. And I would ask that you would faithfully pray these kinds of prayers for us. Father, prune us as a church. Take away whatever it is that makes us unfruitful and give us whatever it is that we need to make us fruitful for the sake of Jesus Christ. Would you commit to praying that kind of prayer on a regular basis? And finally... As you think about the commands of Christ, his commands to worship, his commands to to do good works to the poor, his commands to make sure that, that we love one another as we ought, are you faithful to do that? And many of us are faithful to love our families, but are you faithful to love the church family as you should? Because what God has done for us in Christ is he's made us all a family, and so we ought to look out for each other here in our church. Are you faithful in doing that? Would you pray with me? Father, as best we know how, we want to believe that Jesus is the vine. And like the man who asked for help, Father, I pray that you would help us in our unbelief. I ask that you would reveal in us the things that we turn to other than Christ that are going to leave us dry and empty. 
And I pray that you would remove those things. God, I pray that you would let us remain in Christ. I pray that you would increase our faith, whatever it takes. I ask that we would have the joy that comes from knowing you, from seeing you answer our prayers, from seeing the way we are blessed as we obey your commands. And I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, who made all of this possible. We love you and we want to say thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.